Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the 10th annual Jeffrey Barber Memorial Lecture. Um, it's been 10 years since Jeffrey passed away, and since the first year of his uh, demise, we have always had a lecture to commemorate uh, his, to celebrate his life. Um, the first, of course, was not on not 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 uh, not to mark his death. It was on the year that he died. Professor Senka Bandaranaike gave the first memorial lecture uh, on his birthday on 23rd of July. But a couple of years after that, we moved it to uh, the anniversary of his death um, in May, um, mainly because um, of, of the students who would be able to come for this lecture. Uh, and since then, uh, we've, we've had it. We've had um, many eminent speakers um, grace this podium uh, to deliver this lecture. And this year, we are very happy to welcome um, uh, amongst us um, the first woman speaker to give this Jeffrey Bauer Memorial Lecture and the first from the continent of Africa. Kate Otten is, um, is one of South Africa's most recognized architects, known for being an architect of place. Her buildings are born out of the South African context, weaving together materials, skills, politics, and landscape to create places that feed and nurture the human spirit. Kate believes that buildings have an emotional presence and that fulfilling the emotional and spiritual needs of the users is as important as creating functional space. I first met Kate in 1997, when Jeffrey Bauer and I were in South Africa for Jeffrey to be a judge of the new constitutional court that was coming up in Johannesburg. It was just three years after South Africa's first democratically held elections. Kate and several other architects were made to be our hosts. And I remember a hilarious journey that we all made uh, to this place called the Palace of the Lost City in a place called Sun City, absolutely hideous building, which Jeffrey insisted on going to see, much to the irritation of his other fellow judge, Charles Correa, who said, oh, no, Jeffrey, we can't go, and Jeffrey insisted on going to see this extraordinary place. And I remember this, uh, an amazing, fun-filled day that we spent with Kate and um, other architects uh, out there. These were heady times in South Africa, and between the Sun City and the Jazz Club in Soweto, we had the opportunity of talking with Kate about her thoughts for the new South Africa and the possible projects that she would be working on uh, in this new country. Years later, it was lovely to see her again in Norway, where many of her ideas that she talked about that day were seen in the work she presented at a gathering that we were both addressing. Philosophically, her work is mindful of place and people, very much like the work of Jeffrey, and works within the African tradition of spaces being emotional carriers of meaning. The buildings are happy buildings, fabricated landscapes where light, color, materials, texture, and the change of seasons all interplay to delight the senses and lift the spirit. Through this, Kate seeks to bring a contemporary African sensibility to, architect to the architectural landscape of South Africa, challenging the dominant aspiration of the Western aesthetic. Kate started her studies in Durban and graduated from the University of Witwatersrand in Johannesburg. She worked 
for several leading architectural practices before setting up her own practice in 1989. Kate Architects has subsequently developed into a significant practice with a varied body of work, including important public buildings and places of memory. She's an active member of several professional bodies, involved in architectural education as an assessor and an examiner, and remains deeply passionate about promoting the contribution of women in the profession. She tells me that her office is entirely consisting of women, except for one man. And I asked her, gosh, how does he get on? But she says, very well, he has been put, put in to look after the garden. <laughs> her work has been widely published and has won numerous awards in South Africa and internationally. Today, she will talk about her work, which she sees as landscapes for the spirit. Ladies and gentlemen, I welcome Kate Orton. Jeffrey uh, Bible Memorial Lecture. Um, you actually took bits of what I was going to say about where we met Jeffrey and, and, and Chandler and I. And this image is the one that he's referring to where we met in, in Norway together. Somewhat icier and colder than here. And it is really lovely to be here uh, in Sri Lanka, having met up in South Africa and then in Norway again. And wonderful to come this side of the world. Um, I was last this side of the world probably 30 odd years ago. And so it really is, uh, that, and that was in India, so it really is wonderful to come here. Chana gave me visions of um, elephants dressed in colourful clothing that my daughter would ride on. <laughs> and I've often thought of that since. So a, a real honour to, to be here, and thanks to the Jeffrey Bawa Trust, to Sunetra Bandaranaika, to Miles Young, Chana Daswate, and to Priyanka for all her patience and efforts in, in, in organising. Uh, getting us here. Thank you. And also wonderful to be staying in, in Jeffrey Bauer's homes. It really is just, um, I'm here with my friend Njilan from, um, also works in my practice, and it's just really a special and wonderful privilege to stay in, in his homes. Um, uh, Jeffrey was, uh, long before I met him, somebody who was important in um, the kind of thinking, uh, etc., that I had around architecture. Um, and I think that you'll see some of that in the work, where there's a care about um, people and the gentleness. And, uh, and, you know, just being in his home, I think you really feel that, which is fantastic. So it's, it's really great to be here and welcome. Well, to us too. Um, so just to give you a little bit of a contextual uh, idea of where I come from. Um, this is a young Nelson Mandela who uh, in 1964 was the year that I was born and it was the same year that Nelson Mandela was found guilty of treason and imprisoned on Robben Island. Um, I was 12 years old during the Soweto riots of 19, uprising of 1976 where black children my age were murdered in broad daylight for seeking an equal education. I studied architecture in the 80s, which was possibly the most violent time in the history of apartheid South Africa. The townships were on fire, a state of emergency was declared, people disappeared and were detained without trial. The vicious arm of the apartheid regime was in full force. I started my practice in 1989 amidst this madness of what I've just described. 
Clearly, the work in which I engaged was not mainstream, and nor was my practice. In 1994, we had our first free and fair elections, and the citizens of the country, we could all vote. Um, and we became the rainbow nation, what sort of phrase has been called the rainbow nation, and really was, as you described, an absolutely euphoric time. Um, and in a way, uh, my work kind of parallels the, the kind of changes and um, uh, history of, of our country and how that has been quite important in the way, I think very important in the way that I have um, approached architecture. In 2010, we once again became the rainbow nation when we hosted the World Cup football, the Football World Cup. Um, and it was just a really fantastic time to once again, you know, it, it, and I'm sure that you experienced this, um, you know, having come from, from a war yourselves, and how you kind of move into a euphoric space of finally there's peace and there's connectivity with everybody, but you kind of, time fades and things shift, so it's wonderful to have something like the Football World Cup that kind of galvanizes everybody again and brings everybody together. So it was a fantastic time. Um, most of the work that I will show you is in Johannesburg. That is a Google map of Johannesburg. And what you can see there is that is um, the kind of center of Joburg. And to the north, the much more green areas. And to the south, which is where Soweto is, the much less green areas. And I think what this, in a way, kind of shows you is the whole apartheid city and how apartheid cities were structured so that there was uh, barrier zones between where white people, wealthy people lived in kind of wooded, avenued uh, suburbs and where black people lived in much more barren, um, uh, you know, less developed, etc., etc., much more poor um, areas, and that there were buffer zones created between the two. Um, we'll talk about that a bit more as we go on through the images. And this shows you also that um, Joburg is also the largest man-made forest in the world. And um, I think you can see that from the sort of northern suburbs, which is covered in trees looking back to the city. So just images of Joburg City, which is quite a, a rough, tough place, but I love. Um, and then going from Johannesburg through to Soweto, where you see sort of quite a lot of kind of wasteland almost, where things and then uh, in, in Soweto on a very different kind of scale and um, yeah, more kind of uh, dense, poorer areas. But I think that a lot is happening slowly, but stuff is happening to kind of bridge those gaps and shift that, that um, uh, history. So I've called my, my presentation Landscapes for the Spirit. I will use the structure of landscapes, be they physical, political, emotional, or imagined, to navigate through some 23 years of making architecture, of making places for people that uplift the spirit and shift perceptions, even as they fulfill their function. The key principles or ideas that run through the work are, um, <clears throat> the first, the idea that the building responds to the emotional needs of the user, and conversely, that a building impacts on and influences how people feel. The second idea being that of the integration of the building with the, with the uh, environment, the context, the landscape. 
um, the third, a building is made in such a way that it adds positively to the social and economic conditions of the society in which it is placed. Fourth one, it was local skills and local materials are used, um, in, uh, often in unusual ways. So there is a familiarity and a sort of moving forward off, off that uh, materiality. And the buildings respond to local conditions of climate and of culture. Another principle of, of, is, is that of working with existing buildings where they are treated as a palimpsest. So uncovering value, meaning and opportunity within that existing fabric. Sustainability is also a key theme, but it is perhaps best described as a resourcefulness. The greening of the environment is a consequential outcome of addressing a variety of other issues like social fabric, economics and ingenuity, rather than greening of a building being the sort of end, the result um, being an end in itself, which I think there's quite a lot of that at the moment. And pleasure, pleasure is actually a very important part. Pleasure in the creating, pleasure in the making and pleasure in the using. My journey through architecture has been one of navigating the times and place into which I was born, using architecture to make a line in the sand, a quiet act of rebellion and a refusal to acquiesce to the crashing of the spirit. We're midwinter in Joburg, so <clears throat> we're all full of colds and flus. Um, so the first few are, are painted landscapes of escape and fantasy, the first of those being the Pineapple Republic, which was my first home and first uh, home of Kate Arden Architects. And this drawing, which I did many, a long time ago, was done, uh, to my mind, in the kind of manner of, of Hassan Fati, with the bird headed north, and the idea of flapping down the elevation so that you see what is around you, but flat down on the page, so the elevation of the windows, etc. And this was a house where, being the public pilot, was a kind of way of escaping and a way of dealing with the, the kind of crushing um, apartheid state. And um, I think also working in an environment where white male, particularly Afrikaans um, people, dominated architecture amongst many other things. So the work was a lot more sort of to the side. So I had that's our sort of national flag, our being mine. I was the president and I had the chief of militia. You can see there his insignia on the gate. And then there were many creatures who lived with us, artworks that were commissioned by local, that I commissioned from local um, artists and craftspeople. And in many ways, this became the kind of um, testing ground, if you like, for a lot of the, the ideas that followed from this or buildings that followed from this. So that was the studio. And um, at the time, it was myself and one assistant. And we, um, drawings were kind of done, but then there was a much more, so there were many teams of, of contractors, of builders, who we put together and kind of working very much as a hands-on process. Um, and this really was my kind of escape and my sanctuary safe place and also the idea of kind of reusing materials so these these tiles were kind of discarded from bigger sites etc um, in, in the previous image you can see that's an old pre-cast fence so collecting old items using them giving them new meaning and also you know economics i think pays a large role in a lot of the work that i've engaged in 
Um, so reuse, which is a green concept, is very much around survival, quite often more than, than, than other things in the places that I come from. So the next group of images is uh, the early works. <clears throat> so, and this is, you know, kind of moving on from, I was working out of the Pineapple Republic and then, um, but engaging with craftspeople and the whole idea of um, that the people become who are working on the project become part of the process so that there's an ownership and a, um, a pride in the work that, that, that one is doing. And I think that that's very important. The buildings were quite often very sculptural, quite animated, um, and the idea that they had personality. So like the kind of creatures that all lived in and around me, that this was a similar kind of an extension of that idea. The recycling again, so those are bottles that then shine through and let life twinkle very beautifully within that space. Um, and interpretations of the Zulu headdress, so that these um, pointers, if you like, in, a, in an urban space become um, um, more like people, become kind of animated. Um, textures, colour, light, all of that played a very important role. And these are all just very regular materials and skills and crafts that, pe that, that people are known. We do a lot of building with brick in South Africa, corrugated iron, these are gun poles of various sizes which are just very small or, or much larger. Um, so again, in, in working with craftspeople, so that these were commissioned by an artist, it's, an, it's a craft market, and this was the kind of symbols that we used to, to those were the symbols that we used to kind of define, or if you like, advertise that that's what that building was. And in this building, so we plastered the building too heavily and then hosed it down with a hose pipe so that all the plaster slumped to create this amazing texture and kind of tactile quality. Um, and that's the inside of that drum, so you can see how then the light, uh, it's just very beautiful colours and very sensual spaces to be in. Um, working with steel people. So all of these are kind of engaging with different craftspeople and using their skills and their um, interests, I guess, ingenuity in a way. And I love this image for how a kind of perfect circle yields to the, to the human hand. And there's a really lovely quality in how, what people bring to a building in that way. So it's called utopia, but it really isn't utopian. But this is a little cottage, that uh, a weekend getaway, if you like, that I secretly built for my husband and daughter. And um, it was a gift. It got wrapped in a big red ribbon. And so it really was our little escape from the hectic life of, of, of Joburg, which really can be quite um, demanding. And it was also a very lovely arrangement where the contractor who built this, it was a, a trade. So um, he built this for me, and I did the design and drawings of his house. So there was this very nice kind of, um, yeah, trade, which has often actually happened where, with artists or where I've designed their studio and I've got a really beautiful piece of art. So there's been a lot of that that isn't around literal money, and I think there's something incredibly wonderful about how that exchange can happen, and that through architecture that this can happen. So it was our little love nest, and that's, that's my daughter's bed. And the, the building kind of disappears, so it's a beautiful landscape, the Michalisberg, and it just, you know, the building really is not the dominant, the dominant thing. 
Um, so then, mm, the next few buildings are about um, landscapes of healing and memory. And the first of them um, is the Art Therapy Center, which is in Soweto. And just down the road from the Regina Mundi Church, which was the site of uh, mass gatherings, etc., during the apartheid era. So quite a sort of important and significant um, area. And this actual building is, is housed at the um, uh, Cheshire Homes. It's a sort of little corner that was given over to the art therapy building. That Cheshire Homes is a home for people with disabilities. So there was this very nice kind of synergy between the two buildings and the, the different owners. Um, and also it has a wonderful story because this building was paid for by an anonymous English donor who to this day I don't know who he is, she is. And I administered the money. I had a relationship with their, it was a trust. Um, and so I had a relationship with the, the administrator, I guess, of the trust. And that's how the building, after many years, because it took a long time to find a site, but that's how the building got paid for, which I just think is very lovely. So in terms of the plan, um, that is the, the, the entrance which comes off the street. So it's the site that there is a ramp. Um, so also I think a thing about, you know, this idea that um, around dignity and respect. So if somebody can't get into a building, it's showing complete disrespect because they happen to be in a wheelchair. So I think those sort of things for me run very parallel to the, the um, you know, what apartheid didn't, or what apartheid did and what apartheid crushed and having to have you know, a respect for humanity and a respect for human beings, people, I think is very much part of, of value, I think, in the work. So merely being able to get into a building can be a real challenge for some people, and I think it's important to consider those kinds of things. So small that may be, this is a very small little building, I think it did really wonderful things. Um, for example, the idea that the entrance pops out over and beyond the, the uh, edge of the properties, this idea of being inclusive, creating a shaded area where people could wait for a bus. Um, and then the building itself, the veranda is, it was built for $35,000, which also I think is remarkable. And um, so the, everything kind of doubles up. So the veranda is also the uh, exhibition space the, that is an office area with a, with a um, private therapy room next to it. The um, drum, which is for the, the actual sort of therapy space. Also, just to tell you, sorry, art therapy is, is used where language is a problem. So sometimes uh, language because one doesn't speak the same language, but also because the, the language is not necessarily very sophisticated. So the majority of the users of this building are children who were traumatized by the apartheid era, by poverty, um, etc. And in fact, some of the children using the space didn't speak at all. So, and then visiting it later, years later, then, you know, all those things had shifted. So just an incredibly wonderful space. So the round drum is about everyone is equal, nobody can get put in a corner. Um, and then the wash-up area with the service, the, the toilets, facilities over here, again doubling up and all of that containing a courtyard so that there's the safe outside space. Um, that's looking at the, the drawings of the entrance um, of that courtyard. Those rocks, that tree, everything that was there was used. So it's that idea of resourcefulness. 
and then the Veggie Garden beyond. And the Veggie Gardens were actually all built up so that, again, the people from Cheshire Homes in their wheelchairs could also garden, etc. So there was this very nice kind of working together of both structures. Um, winter in Joburg is bleak, and that's the kind of... Uh, so that's the little courtyard at the back. And then the round um, uh, therapy room. Um, there are curtains that hang in front of those windows so that you can get light from above but still retain that privacy. Um, inside. Then that veranda that doubles up as an uh, uh, exhibition space. Also that you can see that the materials that are used, so the corrugated iron, the brick, etc., very um, commonly used and familiar, but they're used in unusual ways. So the idea being that on entering the building the whole therapeutic process starts where you consider your environment differently and therefore consider yourself differently. Um, so this is the, the kind of wash-up area. Um, that lady in the middle is Maggie, who was the art therapist who started out in what we call a Zozo, which is a little corrugated iron shack. And so this for her was just an absolute dream. It was really wonderful to, to, be, to work on this project. And then this brickwork was a very sort of interesting, where uh, what I did was I took images um, ideas, etc., and then met with the, with the bricklayers and, and discussed how we could do just ordinary old stock brick differently. And then they made ideas of patterns or ideas of how they responded to that. And so the drawing was done, but how it landed up being was ultimately controlled by the makers. And then the little sort of quiet courtyard from the um, therapy space that one sort of point of rest before you go and join the rest of the fray. Now the women's jail is part of the, um, it's, it's, it was a jail, and it is part of the constitutional, the precinct in which the constitutional court is. It's called Constitution Hill. So this is a view from, and, it, and sorry, Constitution Hill is conceived of as a human rights campus. So um, it houses various prisons. I just want to say that there you see the kind of city if I show you that that area there is Constitution Hill, with the 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 green houses of the you know landlords historically, with this kind of green mass, and then the that hill, which is where the prison is and where the old fort is, is the kind of watershed of Johannesburg and of what we call the Witwatersrand. Um, so if we go in a bit closer to that. That is the, the women's jail with the new additions that I'll speak to. That's the old fort, which was um, used... Uh, the, the English imprisoned the Boers in here originally, but then its later history was that people like Nelson Mandela um, were imprisoned in this as a, as a prison, but it, those are the ramparts. And then that structure over there is the new constitutional court. Um, and that building known as number four, or historically known as the native prison, which is a, um, I mean, it was a notoriously brutal prison housing black men, and you know, most of them political prisoners, and just awful things that happened there, but it is a museum. So this whole place is the kind of campus um, of human rights. So. For example, the Gender Commission, the, commi the, the various human rights commissions are housed in these different spaces. And um, what I'd like to do is read to you 
That is Joyce, Joyce Paliso Siroki, who is um, an ex-prisoner. She spent time in the, in the women's jail. Um, the women's jail is a very strange place because it is, it's described as a fine example of English prison architecture. Now, what a fine example of prison architecture is is a bit mystifying to me, but nonetheless, as, as an architectural edifice, it's very beautifully built with beautiful brickwork detailing, etc. But it is better known as a place where women anti-apartheid activists were unjustly imprisoned. Um, and through this project, the jail is transformed from a place of oppression and brutality to a place where human dignity is restored. So I want to just read to you what Joyce, um, who was imprisoned there and then later became a, a, a one of the commissioners of the Gender Commission. And um, so she then used the office buildings that we designed that are inserted into the, the building. It is ironic that every day since the Commission on Gender Equality moved to Constitution Hill, I walk through the same entrance of the women's jail that I walked through on that fateful day in 1976, when I was detained under Section 10 of the Prevention Detention Act, Pre Preventative Detection Detention Act. Sorry, I proceed past the same garden, which at the time I did not appreciate its beauty. I proceed past the garden into the same atrium where I was stripped of my name, identity, and given a number. My jewellery and my handbag, with all its contents, was removed. Instead of being ushered to my cell where I spent six months in solitary confinement, I walk into my beautiful office where I enjoy a beautiful view and am surrounded by a cheerful and committed staff. My colleagues and staff of the CGE marvel at my composure and excitement about having our headquarters based in the jail. I tell them that coming here represents my final step in, in achieving closure. My being here represents the triumph of our nation over a system that once denied people their humanity and dignity. My being here only emphasizes that our sacrifices and struggle for human rights were not in vain. The use of these premises is a clear sign that as a country we have come a long way, that wounds are being healed and that we are able to transcend all bitterness to embrace hope, love and faith in our democracy. And I just think that's such a moving piece because she is now a commissioner and uses the very building that we were engaged in making. So that is a plan of um, Constitution Hill. There is the women's jail, <clears throat> the fort, the Constitutional Court. Um, and these are the kind of major axes through at an urban level. Now, this was also one of the important projects that were done um, post-94, where there were kind of earmarked places that were developed as kind of urban regeneration programs. So Constitution Hill was one of them, the Nelson Mandela Bridge, Clip Town, which marked the site of where the Freedom Charter was signed. That these all became quite important sites of memory and public buildings or I think in a way perhaps the public buildings came too quickly, but that the, it was very important to mark these places and to use that process of trying to bridge that buffer zone, that gap, that, that space between Soweto and Johannesburg and connect them into one, into one city. And I think that was an incredibly, just an incredible time really, and to work on this building was also an amazing honor.
So these, this first slide shows you what was existing. And in a way, the, there were kind of a duality of things going on, where there's this idea of an architectural language, developing an architectural language, looking at a building that was quite beautiful, but obviously with a very brutal history. So how one approached that architecturally, and then how that responds to the, to the memory, to the history, to how people felt about it, how women felt about it. So not to, not to beautify it, not to make it misrepresentative of what that history was. It also wasn't always used, it ceased to be a prison before, um, be used as a prison before 94, and it was used by um, the CCB, the Civil Cooperation Bureau, who were notorious for their brutality, and then also housed the traffic department of all things. So the cells were kind of converted into offices, etc. and this goes to this idea of palimpsest. So we removed a lot of stuff and kind of things became revealed. So on this plan, that is the, the, the English prison system where you have the central control with these arms that come out. So the next arm would have been built there or would have been built there. Um, and so we chose to build what buildings we were building not in that pattern, so that there's this whole kind of conversation between moving forward and shifting. Um, and that is the old awaiting trial building, and that became very pivotal in how the setting out of the buildings happened. Also that this atrium space was always very important, and that is retained. So it's a space you then move through the cell blocks and into the offices, or through these cell blocks and into those offices. So always this interaction with the history, with the memory. Um, that's the next floor up, and then the top floor, did it go? No, there we are, where the buildings actually it go beyond the line of this, um, sorry, it's got very pale, but beyond the line of the, of the big wall that contains the prison. Um, very faint, sorry, I'll just move on from those. <clears throat> um, and that is the building as we found it. Um, and that is now, so that is the one entrance, the main entrance from the south. And you move through there and then you get to the entrance into the atrium. And then that shows you a picture of the atrium. Now, so this atrium, prisoners were never allowed to walk in the center of that. They always had to walk around the outsides. But they had to polish this, kind of incessantly polish, polish, polish. And that there is a collection of the cloths and of the brushes that were used um, well, it's part of a permanent exhibition that, so there's a permanent exhibition that, that is in that space that kind of explains the history, um, and that's what those are. And then this shows, looking from the atrium down one of the cell wings, so this structure in here when we found it was all a bunch of offices with, you know, lightweight plasterboard walls, etc., and this had all been bricked up. So there was this thing of kind of like archaeology almost, of moving away layers to find what was the most important layer and what kind of best represented the, the history. And so this grill became revealed, which is quite wonderful. And then how that, it's quite exciting. So you sort of take this and this history comes and comes. And, um, and then it, the language developed. So for example, that is a glass door that's inserted into this existing structure. So always very clear about what is old and what is new. Um, this is the cell blocks that you walk through on both sides to get in. Um, and as I said, the one is a permanent exhibition, the other side is a, 
changing exhibition. So this is Fatima Mia, who was imprisoned in uh, this prison, and it was the opening of her exhibition of work that she'd done of art, of paintings and drawings that she'd done while she'd been imprisoned. And there are some people also in the atrium looking at the various exhibitions. And then back down into the atrium and looking out. So you can see that kind of connection. And that there is the awaiting trial building that sets up these two new office wings that are inserted into the what was the exercise yard. So um, you see there, that is again the awaiting trial building. And then architecturally, that, that balcony above it hovers. So it's always kind of leaves the existing structure as something that's quite free. Um, and then what you see here also is that these two stories have a relationship, architectural relationship, with the two floors of the existing prison cells and that level with that rooftop. So there's also this whole, um, I suppose, spatial way of dealing architecturally with, with uh, the buildings and simultaneously with the meaning. Um, so, I thought that went backwards. So there you see the two floors plus the one, and this is in its very early life when it was silver, so that has rusted, so that it develops more of a, of a closer relationship with the um, uh, existing structure, but in a wholly new language. If you are in the one building, you look across to that awaiting trial building with Hillbrow, the Hillbrow Tower in the background. So I just think that gives you a very nice sense of context. And then this line over here, that, which is the, now a covered glass entrance, um, it was, it, there was always a line, a corrugated iron fence, that, that separated the two sides of the courtyards. Um, so there's a lot of kind of symbolism, I guess, that is or, 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 that is used in, in this design. Um, we grasped over the courtyards, which some people were not happy with, I think, because it, it does this thing of making pretty uh, a space that was really not pretty at all. But the decision to do that was also because these are new buildings, uh, I mean, office buildings, and that they wanted to create some kind of amenity for the office user. So there you see also the um, uh, permanent exhibition and how the building and the exhibition kind of become one with each other. And that how the, so, so that also is a representation of a cell um, with the slot bucket, etc. So we work quite closely also with the people who did the, the exhibition work. And then how the new building sort of slips into the, the old building um, and you'll see that the new building uses a lot of glass as well, which also this whole idea of transparency and openness and access. Um, it, it also is a building that considers how people in a wheelchair might suddenly need to get out of a fire and not be able to run down a fire escape, which I think... Um, so it's all around making safe escapes and just being respectful. Um, on that level. Um, this here is where the building quite literally escapes, jumps out over the wall and, and um, it's on one of the axes, one of the entries into the uh, campus, into the human rights campus, and you see that. So it was quite a, a, a you know, controversial point, um, but I think an important thing to do, and I, I was saying how this wall when I was growing up in Johannesburg, I was very aware of it, but I had no idea what went on on the other side of it. So I think that you start to allude to that is very important. 
and so do the fire escapes. These are not the ones for the people in wheelchairs. But that, that also has a relationship to that wall, so it kind of hovers, and, and you become aware of the uh, power of that wall to contain, but also this, that there is something more, that we're moving towards the future. Um, and then to talk a bit about these screens, so you will see there, so the, the idea that the color and the kind of texture have a relationship architecturally. The, the theme of these, the motif, if you like, that's used on these screens is, is a sky, a pixelated sky, and that comes from prisoners talking, ex-prisoners speaking about how the sky was the one freedom that could not be taken away from them. So that became the motif that we used. And then that's pixelated, and all those disks then were used at the lower screens, which slide. And um, that kind of draws a parallel with these tapestries that, that the women were given to kind of while the time away. And I think it just makes a very beautiful kind of tracery that you get that kind of quality of light on the inside of the offices. Um, and then memory and how it's reflected in different parts of the buildings and so how you uh, you know, reinstate things. So that was the entrance that prisoners were brought through, so that that was reinstated, but a new contemporary piece of glass was put in that. And then it becomes a, a thing of, of, of layers and of reflection. Um, and that was the opening of the uh, new offices on Women's Day, which for us is on the 9th of August. Um, and then just looking out from the um, isolation cells. And then across from the women's jail is the old fort, which we were also involved in. Uh, we were involved in, there was no you know, big insertions of architecture here, but it was around, um, it kind of stopped the rot. So to prevent the building from deteriorating further and also to take away layers in order to reveal what was the, um, you know, w these buildings sort of became quite um, neglected and um, occupied by, I don't know, odd offices and strange things. So it was kind of bringing that back into um, public uh, availability, but also creating public access. So. Um, we're not, we didn't restore it, it isn't about restoring it, but it's about kind of preventing it from deteriorating further and then recording the history. So you can see here that in this area, um, this, these patterns are brick patterns of what buildings were there, that at some point were arbitrarily demolished. But we left them that way, and then this space is used for gatherings and, and that kind of thing. And then at another point, which you actually see better over there, the ramparts were, <clears throat> a hole was made in them for access between. So then we put this very simple bridge on the top so that you can access all the way around the ramparts. Um, then uh, to look at what we call International House, which is a student's residence at Bits University. And, um, this isn't really about memory, but I think it's also about doing things differently and shifting patterns. So a lot of the old residences at Bits University are these long passages with sort of, you know, rooms coming off them and staircases that are continuous and, and really quite lonely, dark passages. Um, so this is for international students and conceptually the, 
the kind of motive was to try and create a building that created interaction between the users merely through how it was designed. So, for example, this is one of the major access pathways through Wits University. And you'll see in the images how this entrance hall literally goes right over that. So it's this idea of being inclusive. That um, all these trees existed, so we then made these um, pockets of, of or, or fingers or pieces of uh, collections of accommodation that kind of go into that and create courtyards. So you have small numbers, kind of seven or eight, and of, of um, these units that that then are connected with these outside covered walkways that, so that there's opportunity also to look across at each other and create outside open space. Those are the common rooms, so you're always kind of coming past somebody, um, which you can't see so well here, but there, there you'll see later the lifts, the stairs work in such a way that you every time you go up a stair you have to move through the building before you can use another stair. So there's always this thing of chance engagement with, with other people. Um, and that just shows you the sections. So because of the way the site was, that, that um, you enter on the middle level, you go up one floor or you go down one floor. And I think that is a very important thing in a lot of this work, the relationship to what is existing, what is on site and what can um, the building gain from, you know, you know, how can you respond to what is there. So this is an idea of that major, the, the walkway that comes right through, that being the front door to the, the student accommodation. It's student accommodation, sorry, for international students, did I miss that part? And um, this here is a, uh, one of the rooms, sort of typically. So there you are with the entrance roof coming out over the public walkway. Um, and from the inside, that's the entranceway. Then also quite important to this building was the use of colour. Those jacaranda trees were there and we could build very close up to them because they have tap roots so that they became have a very wonderfully close relationship to the buildings. But also their colour is so special in, in spring, it's just completely beautiful. And so the colours chosen were, were cheerful, uplifting, happy colours that um, I think as opposed to these quite grim grey structures that exist elsewhere on campus. Um, I love how chance things happen, that you know the building is reflected in the building itself, which is just quite lovely. And then the making of outside spaces, so that tree that existed there becomes an area here that you can have uh, barbecues, etc., that they're kind of outside spaces to gather and socialise. Um, and you can see there how they're not many rooms, but also that you can speak to people, you know, they're not kind of closed off down dark passages. And again, this whole thing of, of regular ordinary materials, brickwork, corrugated iron, um, and then used in, in ways that create something slightly more sculptural, more interesting. Um, and you see there how a staircase doesn't, you know, is not a continuous thing, but you move through space and then use the staircase again. And outside areas that also are for chance um, uh, meetings. So the next um, Parkhurst shops, which are shops on the high street of um, a sub suburb, suburb called Parkhurst, 
And um, this is historically a residential area. So um, what ostensibly this is the project, but it's two sites. That was a house plus a garage. That was a house plus a garage. And um, the whole idea of making the shops very accessible to, you know, giving them a face to the street um, and very visible. What we did was, you, you know, quite often, I think, when you convert a house to a shop, there's a very awkward space that happens between where the house ended, there's the boundary wall, and then there's this pavement. So what we did was take the boundary wall down and move the line of the public space right in to up against the house so that you can see that this area here that would have been private space is now public space but it's covered with a veranda and then these are courtyard spaces so they're sort of courtyard shops um, you know we've kind of maximized what the town planning would allow us in terms of space and then retaining the residential scale so those three buildings remain three little residential buildings so it fits into that whole um, the scale of the area, but at the same time becoming these very open and accessible shops with this covered veranda that moves along. So there you see how the um, covered veranda kind of cantilevers out um, and brings the line of public access right up to the shop faces. And the idea behind that uh, movement is the, um, I suppose, how, how you might move through a street. So it just kind of gives it an animation um, to, to a, 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 a veranda space, a covered outside area. And that you can get shade, you can get, you know, don't get wet, etc. Um, and then the corner shops, so that same veranda kind of turns the corner. And where the actual shops are, that there are skylights that mark the entrance. And then the inside of the houses are kind of taken out and all the trusses that were there and this chaotic sort of spider's web of timbers that held it all up are painted white and just become this um, tracery in a way that make very beautiful light. I love light and shade and how that kind of pattern works. Um, I also think that an important thing that that moving the veranda does is you know, post-apartheid, there, there was also a lot of fear about closing down and shutting oneself in to be safe, because who knows what's going to happen. But this is the same gesture as the, as the art, uh, art therapy building, where the reverse happens, so that you invite the public in. And there's a wonderful kind of response that you get when you do that. And as opposed to you becoming more vulnerable, I think that you become more accessible and you become more... Um, human and I think that you know crime goes down because it's you, you treat people as people not as something someone something that should be excluded <clears throat> um, okay so the next collection of buildings are really private houses um, the first of them being house study which was done in Melville many years ago and it is on the top of the copy which is a little hill, if you like, and so it starts, it was an existing building, and so we start with the garages at the bottom, and then the public facilities, the, the, the lounge, dining, kitchen, etc., on that level, and then the bedroom areas up at the top, but with the idea that you see all the way through, because you're on this highest level again, and you're looking north or south, um, 
and that is the the uh, house. So you see this kind of the roof that's been designed to be almost like a copy itself, and then that the um, at night when the light shines here, that you kind of get this image of a copy floating on top of one. All the materials here are left in their raw condition, so that that kind of gives it its energy. And the corrugated iron is also, I think, quite significant because. So it is the new floor that is added on, so it's a lightweight structure. But also that corrugated iron is kind of given a new, if one uses it, you know, historically it's always been in, in shack development in kind of squatter settlements, etc. But to now put it into quite a sophisticated house, so you kind of change the meaning of it and up the meaning of, of, of a very ordinary material. Um, and again, quite sort of sculptural. So there you see the space that you look one way, you look through the other way. Um, also very small scale properties, so to kind of get the sense of volume um, was very important and to let light through. So you see, for example, in that, there's always this play of light and how light comes in from quite unusual places. Um, the Pringle Bay House, I think it's the one exception that isn't in Johannesburg. And this is very much a response to uh, a brief, which is a very large house. But also it is in an area where when the weather is foul, it's really awful. So the wind blows like mad. And, um, but when the weather's good, you have the most beautiful views and it's right on the sea. So the building can open up to the views, but at the same time it works around a courtyard space that contains um, and is safe. Are alarms, go are alarms going off to say it's time, or is that just naughty cell phones? <laughs> naughty cell phones, okay. Um, so, for example, that is the entrance, but you close those doors and then there's a covered entrance, almost like a wind block, before you come into the front door, so you're not kind of blown right into your front door. And then there are these wonderful views that happen, and this is actually on axis with False Bay, so you see across False Bay and you see Table Mountain on a really good day. But um, I didn't have my camera that day. So these are drawings of, of those spaces. Um, that's the courtyard space. And then sort of looking out, so the kind of intermediary spaces that have got more dappled light. Um, and that's the view of the study. What this shows you is also how it's in quite an open area, so the, the desire to keep the building low, to keep it single story and not a double story, was important, and that these here become kind of markers in the landscape, which is where the corners of those axes happen, um, and to fragment the building. I think also what that shows you is the choice of colour was very important, and that stone comes from the site. The idea that it works with the landscape and into the landscape. And that through making the, the different rooms kind of um, more fragmented, you downscale the size of this quite large house. So also you see how you see through the building. So at this point, back to the Pringle Bay, the Bay of Pringle Bay. Um, and then those also mark the turning points, but let lots of lovely light through. Um, and this project was also an opportunity to kind of engage with craftspeople um, the client also is a collector of fantastic art, so I engaged also with the interiors of this building. So sometimes a bit like the John Soane Museum, sometimes things were crafted to belong to this house and sometimes the house was kind of built around what was already 
part of, of, of his collection. So those were all commissioned, these crazy turned columns. Um, and then you'll see in the, in, in the interiors how the kind of colours of the, of the works that he had, etc., how that influenced what was chosen. So there you see the mountain, which you'll see that there are high-level windows on certain sides, which enable you to see. Without that, you don't see the top of a mountain. So if you have a high-level window, you actually see the top of a mountain. Um, and then these next three images are of the intermediate spaces, so that there's this inside-outside thing, not as easily as you can do it here, because the weather doesn't quite permit, but that you create these intermediate spaces half inside, half outside, so covered from the weather, but that you can kind of, the building can be more permeable. And so from there, you would see through, sorry, just the exposure's not great, but there's the mountain beyond that. Um, and that is the dining room, so that is a painting that came from Senegal. So there was all these very interesting layers that, that happened in the making of this house. And the commissioning of various people to, um, you know, all the kind of interiors, etc., where they came from, who made them, that was sort of in support of, of, of various groups of um, people, uh, craftspeople, um, etc. And that is Scottness, who's a very famous artist in our country. And then you see again that kind of integration between, and the colour of the fangles, which is, which is endemic to the Cape. Um, but it, and also very interesting for me to learn about because I come from the high felt, so I know all about high felt grass and that kind of vegetation. But to work in, in a space where you don't get trees, you, it's kind of much more low kind of shrub um, vegetation, and to, to, to learn to find beauty in it, which was quite interesting for me. And it has this very monochromatic, or, or kind of greens and greys, and then at a certain point it just shoots these most fantastic colours, and you you learn a whole kind of respect for that, where I didn't understand it when I started. One of the things that I really love is, uh, and it's particular to Joburg also, well, it's particularly um, magnificent in Joburg, but we have the most incredible clear sky, and this idea about, you know, the sky being the background. If you're sitting and looking up and what things might look like, or how that might act as a pattern on the floor. So then, House um, Altman Marsdorp um, is in a suburb of Joburg. And what was very interesting about this project was that they, they loved that previous house. They'd seen that house and they thought it was very lovely, so they commissioned me to do their house. Um, but they, never, they brought pictures of gardens. All the images that they showed me were of very beautiful outside spaces, courtyards, Etc. So there was this fantastic brief that had nothing to do with the building, which I thought was really great. Um, and so this is the concept where there are these sort of shifting planes and the play between solid and void and, um, you know, semi-solid and how that kind of came out in the house. Also that, again, another large house, but where this is the main road, well, the road from which you access it, but that they didn't want this big... I am house kind of sign outside, so that the main body of the house is brought very much further into the property. It's a large property. Um, and uh, the idea also of creating a courtyard space from which you then 
So the entrance is hidden. You don't arrive at the entrance for quite a while. In fact, some struggle to find it. And I think that they really like that. That is the entrance over there. And this whole space is the entrance hall, be it inside, be it outside. And that became the kind of pivotal thing around the parts of the house that kind of hang off that. And then the leftover spaces that become these really um, wonderful courtyards. So what was a negative leftover space becomes a really positive, wonderful space. A long um, lap pool, 25 meters long, and then this big stone wall that you kind of go through, and then there's this meander through the garden. Um, and it is a bio pool, so all of that is plant filtering water. That is the upstairs. <clears throat> and you see also with these roofs, getting a bit pale, but how they are working in the same kind of three-dimensional way that the, that the plan is working. So you do eventually find the entrance, and that is it. The idea being that these great big gum poles, you'll see this on the inside, so that the, it was also quite a forested house, so that their gum poles become more of the forest. Um, and if you see there, so the gum poles come from the outside to the inside, and they're kind of randomly placed um, with the roof that has got the rafters also shifting and letting little shafts of light down, much like you would get from the canopy of, of, of trees in a forest. So this kind of um, um, symbolism of plant kind of follows through in the, in the whole house. That's looking back towards the front door and you can see how it just kind of moves straight out and there's this uneven rhythm of, of columns and trees. Looking up again so that you see that canopy with the little shafts of light coming through or looking down from above and how um, these lights, so at night time there's little tiny lights there and then these hanging all sort of leaf-like ones so that at night you get a similar kind of effect as it kind of moves in and out. Um, this is a very early picture, so that whole backdrop there is now green. Um, so it opens out into this really lush, gorgeous place. And then here you see these courtyard spaces, you look back towards the front door and then moving from there towards the patio. And so, again, this is winter, so it's really no, not enough trees. But it's very wooded and very green, in, in particularly in summer. And as it has grown and developed, um, there you see the swimming pool and the kind of transparency of the lower level, and then the privacy created by those shutters upstairs. Um, and that's the biofilter to the swimming pool, which I think just gives the, the garden a really lovely feel. Um, and the swimming pool, the, the main bathroom, so very large, generous, easy spaces. And ideas like this, which I think you often see in the work, where you know a window put at an unusual place causes you to lower your vision and to look differently at something, and just to appreciate this. If you were to look out here, you'd see the garages. So we've kind of shifted where that view is so that you see the plants and not the cars. Um, then House Amasori, which is in Johannesburg again, and um, the clients from West Africa. And so how that works is kind of in a response to the idea of um, where entrance is not axial. So 
that you enter into a, into a contained space, into a, this is the lower level and the up is the up level. So you enter here into a, a public space where you can park your car, those are garages, um, and then off the axis, and so that you can't see in, is the way that you access the house. And then following up these stairs, you get this main axial space. So it's, it's quite private. So even though the house itself is very axial, very open, and a very clear brief of gallery space and public rooms, lounge, dining, kitchen, playroom, etc. And on this side, the bedroom areas. Um, the way that you get there and how the public are not immediately invited into the house. Well, you can't see into the house, so there's this kind of layering of privacy. Um, this was an existing building as well, so it was kind of rationalizing that into a, a structure that, that um, is quite clean and quite modern. Um, Again, there's a swimming pool over there with its biofilter over there, and then the, the trees that are existing there and just grass. So it's a bit park-like, that, that aspect of the house. Um, and then you see in the sections, but I think again, very pale, sorry. Um, <clears throat> what you see there over here is that the public space has kind of got very high um, pitched roof that creates a very large volume, whereas the more private bedroom spaces are more intimate and the scale is more intimate. So just moving through, so the house on the outside is this very dark graphite color and very pale on the inside and um, with these kind of shots, a very strong color. Um, this is very early, the plants are just moving in and so you know there's a lot of development that needs to happen to spaces like this courtyard then up the stairs to the entrance. So again, you see those kind of shots of color. And what this building does, which we'll see on the inside, um, so it's a very calm house. Um, and this quite pale inside, this quite rich outside, and that it becomes the backdrop for their collection of richly patterned and colored African art and African furniture. Um, so this very clean sort of contemporary space and then it is, so this is early days, none of the paintings have been hung, etc. Um, and then these big barn doors that slide away so that that whole main public space uh, interleads or can be closed off. The large high volume. What's also important in, uh, this is a sweet sequence, <laughs> um, and there you see it from the outside. Uh, also that this kind of color is in the light of Joby is fantastic with plants against it. So there's this, it's, it feels quite cool even though it's such a dark color. Um, there you see how, so another sequence. Um, what is important also about this house, here's the kitchen, is how it functions climatically. So, in summer, all the doors open out, and there's wonderful cross breezes, and you can very much live outside. Whereas in winter, it's very cold in Joburg, so everything can be shut down, and light comes in, or sun, warmth, comes in at different angles, which then, um, you know, it's a very easy and comfortable house to be in as a result. That's the kitchen. And, and these things are these sort of bursts of color, where there's this very plain, very quiet backdrop, and then, you open the cupboard and wow, they're all your things. Um, 
and for me, very important, the play of light. So through this gallery, there are these shafts of light. Um, that's the main bedroom. Looking through into the bathroom um, and the passage beyond, and then those back to the gallery with that light that kind of comes through. Um, this is our house. Pizzerides is my husband's name, and it was a really very interesting project because it's where I, we currently live. And um, he was the client and I was the architect, and we were very strict about that. And no unilateral decisions were taken, and, and it was a fantastic um, experience. So that by the time we moved into the house, we were both kind of more in love than we'd ever been. And, and, and the whole process was just really fantastic. And how, um, yeah, so it was an existing house. Um, down a panhandle set in, a, a, in, in very lovely, full of trees, again, very wooded, very quiet, very calm. And the, we loved the house, made it sort of 60s with stone and pine ceilings and stuff. But that is the original section, so very low kind of, um, you felt almost a bit squat, actually. So what we did was just pop the roof up and let a whole lot of north light in, etc. And then there's a portion that became two-story. That's a sort of large study area. And then there was a long debate about how we were going to screen that from the sun. But he chose that one, and we just never got around to it. So I'm afraid it still looks like this. Um, and that is so a very open house and, and a very warm and glowing kind of a space that has a very direct relationship with the garden and I'm a very keen gardener so Ben is lucky to be the gardener. <laughs> He's very happy about his position. Um, and the veranda space. So in Joburg in winter the sun is clear and the sky is magnificently blue and if there is no wind and you're in the sun, it's warm as toast. So a veranda is a very fabulous thing to have. So that in summer, the sun is vertical and no sun gets on the veranda, whereas in winter, the sun is at a very low angle and so it comes onto that veranda space. Um, and also this kind of moving between what is inside and what is outside. So the whole kind of facade, if you look back this way, is all it's all glass. And in fact, all of that was existing. So there's this, if you knew it before, it's quite difficult to, or if you didn't know it before, I think it's difficult to see that things changed, which I think is its success. So it's kind of much bigger than it was, got a lot more light, and, um, but it hasn't lost that kind of personality that it had. And things like this, which is this raked plaster, so it's again more plaster that's raked with a Ordinary stuff, raw plaster wrapped with a tiling trowel, so it gets this fantastic texture um, that then is sealed. And just shafts of light and how that, the interplay of that. That's the study upstairs, still waiting for its screens. Um, and our fantastic bath that I have to confess I've never used. But all the stone that we then brought from, from another site and used, and light. So light comes through from above and, and washes that, that stone wall or reflects in the, in the mirrors of the basin. Um, and again, that you can open the whole house up in good weather or, or shut it down and be warm. 
um, the bedroom, and that is the kind of view that you wake up to with this. Um, everything literally just slides away. So in good weather, it's a fantastic place to live. Uh, mm. um, Gabriel's Garden Pavilion. So this is an, the house, which is, this is the site plan. That is the sort of top of the hill that moves down that way. And this was a, is a monument. Um, the house is a national monument. And um, we did a building down here in the garden. And the garden is absolutely magnificent. I'm afraid the photographs don't do it justice, but I always felt that that was very much part of the heritage of this building. So it's one of the old houses of, of um, Joburg, not built by a landlord, but actually built by a farmer um, from Portugal. That is a section through it. So you see the house up at the top, and then um, those are garages underneath with that sort of top terrace. That house opens up onto that. That's the driveway up, it's along the sweeping slope. That's the building that we uh, did. We restored the house as well. And, and the kind of, so you see the extent of the property, an enormous 5,000 square meters, sort of 10 minutes from the center of Joburg. I mean, it's extraordinary. So that's the house which we restored. Um, and then, um, so that was the first part of the project, and then we moved, we also were involved, you can see just peeping up over there is the summer house, which is the kind of outside art entertainment area with the swimming pool, etc. And then that is the long sloping ramp of the driveway that goes all the way up. Um, a detail of that, there's the house beyond. And then if you look to your left, you see the driveway coming all the way back down again, again with that same rock wall. Now this garden was a very um, important part of the, I think, heritage of the building. So, so in part there's a, a working garden where there were vegetables and um, roses for the house, etc. And then the other garden, which is sort of the more beautiful, romantic kind of garden that you would wander through. And this whole system of water, of how it's collected, goes into a tank, circulates down this way, pops out of the lion's head, moves down, etc. So that the whole um, site worked on this system of, of, of irrigation. And that became quite important in the design of this building, which is in fact a home office for the woman who owns this structure. Um, and so that is that wall going up and that is the other one going down. There's the existing fountain and the kind of patterns of the existing landscape um, into which we added this, these two pavilions that are then connected, linked, covered, securely, you know, from where they're inside. But um, retaining that, uh, that wall and it becomes, you'll see, very much part of the whole design. And then the roof of that becomes a pond which it's this whole idea of the fifth facade that you look down onto it from above. We'll look at that in some greater detail. So you see the section there where that existing stone wall becomes incorporated into the building and then this pavilion separated from and kind of floating. So quite a large structure, but what was very important was that it never, you never lost the dominance and the importance of, of, of the existing monument up on the ridge there. So the building is very see-through. You 
can see all the way through to that existing stone wall. Um, and, uh, you know, very open, very contemporary building. Again, <clears throat> lots of north light, this kind of flow directly out into the garden. How the building, again, the tree was there first, so it kind of responds to that. Um, and then you see there the stone wall, and between the pavilion and that stone wall, a skylight, so that that whole area is washed um, with light. And so that is the kind of office working environment, which um, is extremely unusual in Joburg. I, I don't think as unusual here, but definitely in Joburg, and just a wonderful place to work in. Um, and it all slides open, as you can imagine, so in summer it's lovely and cool, and in winter it's lovely and warm. And then how that rock work, so the, the rock work, because it's an existing stone wall, is, is an existing garden wall, so obviously it gets wet if rain comes through it, so it just collects in a channel and goes out. So we never tried to make it dry, we just let it be what it is. Um, the kitchen area, you can see the light coming down there. And then working again with the same kind of water, ideas about water and the spout. And that tank that then waters the garden, that's moving up the driveway um, and looking back down onto those. So the building itself disappears. It becomes this um, reflection, the other plane. It becomes another part of the landscape. It just kind of disappears into that. And then the last building, um, which is my house, but I don't live in it. Um, in, it's called Lulukatikati which is Swahili for um, pearl in the middle. So it is in the suburb of Melville. That is the ridge. And it's this long, skinny site. That's the main high street of Melville, and it kind of ends in that. The property itself is too steep to be a road, so hence it became a kind of leftover piece of land which I bought. <clears throat> and it's very skinny. It's sort of 8 meters up at the top and 12 meters down at the bottom some conceptual ideas about how that worked. And then um, the plans are quite difficult to understand because the site is so steep. So we're going to look mostly only at the house that's up at the top. So you enter off that axis of the main road and enter into this forecourt um, of trees and cars and all kinds of stuff, and then over a bridge. So it's very steep. There's this incredible rock face and this enormous indigenous Dombea tree, and the building kind of slips between these natural structures. Um, and looking out towards the north, um, so you enter over this bridge. It's, the house itself is a three-story structure. We enter on the middle level, which is living with a kitchen that side. That's the staircase that takes you up and down. Or you go up a level, which is sleeping, um, with two bathrooms, kind of differently divided according to who's using it. Um, or you go back down to the, or you, down to the lowest level, which is something, it, it, again, a sort of big public living area with its own bathroom and a kitchenette on that side that opens out onto a patio. So, um, and underneath, oh, sorry, that is the upstairs again, sorry. Oh, I'm going backwards, sorry. There we are at the ground level, lowest level, the sort of cave-like level that opens out onto a patio with a cottage underneath it and a swimming pool at the end. All very complicated, but if you look at that section, you will understand it. So that's the level of the top road, and that is the level of the bottom road where you enter that house, 
from the top you enter into the house that, that I lived in, that was my studio for a while, and then down here is the swimming pool that becomes the edge that retains. <gasps> oh my god. Um, if anyone has any questions to ask, um, please be. I really do think that at different moments, so I mean I think for me it's quite a fluid process. Um, as I have, uh, you know, I'm now a mother of a child, so I have less time to fit everything in. So I do spend less time on site than what I used to spend on site. Um, so I think that the buildings, uh, there's a lot more work that happens in the office now than what used to happen before. Um, and, uh, you know, it, the detail can often happen in response to, to what is perceived to be a problem. Um, so, you, you know, things happen quite quickly. You go out onto site with sort of 1 in 50 drawings, not very detailed drawings, and then you bump up against issues, and that's, I think, the most often times when things are resolved and when details arrive. Um, yeah, does that answer your question? I mean, I think historically there was much more of, a, of an engagement literally on site, whereas now it would be that, uh, you know, one bumps into an issue and will resolve it and then bring that back to site. Um, yeah. But I think what's always remained and is very important to me is that the, you know, you get these beautiful magazine pictures of um, buildings where, frankly, we just couldn't achieve that in our country with what we have available to us. There's not, stuff is not pre-manufactured in a factory that comes out exactly fitting. They seldom exactly fit, and they never exactly fit when you're working with an existing building particularly. And um, for me, that's not a problem, it's just the nature of things. And so I think that the buildings are designed to accommodate that and to respond to that. It's not to say that they're chaotic and they're not thought through and that the details are not but they're just managed in a different way. Um, you, you know, they're types of buildings that I would never conceive of making because they just wouldn't fit where I am. Um, so, yeah, I think that plays a very important part. Were you inspired by Frank Lloyd Wright in some of your work? Actually, not at all. I'm sorry to be amongst all these architects and stay there, but, but Frank Lloyd Wright has never been a favorite of mine. I'm far more inspired by Jeffrey Barber, by Hassan Fati, by um, Charles Correa than, than, you know, he never did anything for me, I'm sorry. It was just one of those terrible architectural faux pas that I was not moved by the way that Frank would write at all. Um, I, yeah. Uh, uh, those three architects, I think, have been Hassan Fati, Jeffrey Bauer and, and Charles Correa have been very, and also um, uh, Barcelona, help me here, I've gone completely gone. Thank you very much. Also very uh, influential in my, um, uh, you know, what I also think was quite interesting, I was chatting this morning about it, where um, 
in our schools of architecture, we were taught very much around Western architecture. So we studied work that happened in Europe, etc. And um, my interest was, uh, in a way, it kind of was in Islamic architecture. I think because um, there was quite a lot of documented. Uh, you, know, you spoke of the city of Isfahan. I mean, that was for me just from first year, just the most beautiful place. I long to go there, so I'm quite jealous. But um, uh, so that those, uh, the kind of architectures not of the Western world have been more interesting to me in many ways. And um, and I guess through during when I was studying, trying to kind of influence the lecturers, etc., so that we could get exposure to to. Um, for me, in a way, more relevant work, or work that was equally relevant and very important that, particularly in our country, was not valued. Um, and, you know, one always looked to the West for kind of sophistication and, and, and education and whatever. And that, for me, was not my approach at all. Um, so, yeah, I think that's quite interesting, and I think that that does definitely come through in the work. So I'm not somebody who is a... I, I would never, I'm not an academic architect at all. I'm not sort of, you know, I don't write papers on architecture, I make architecture. And I think that that's, for me, always been very, very important. And I love making buildings, and they're kind of, a lot of them. And, yeah, it's fantastic. This picture was taken during construction, so you can see the, the shoes and the incompleteness. And this building was quite interesting, actually, because it was constructed halfway and then it stopped. The practice became very busy and so I ignored it. So it got very rained upon. And maybe that's why that happened. But the, <laughs> so the, the wood, etc. of the structure got quite stained. And I had this long debate with myself about whether or not it was important to sort of shine it all up. And in the end I didn't. And, and it's actually got this lovely, you know, the kind of inside fits of kind of old and have this history of them with these new kind of shiny pieces added on top so perhaps that's why it happened okay so this house is on the axis of melville that is the the high street of melville and right down towards the bottom does the mouse work no um hmm? use my hands arrows so you come down this main street and then you move into this property. This is the house under construction. It was at this point that it got left to get rained on. Um, and um, it is on the copy. So what is, so it becomes, this kind of shows you that kind of very green Joburg that I spoke of and how it disappears into that. And that place is a little bit, you can see the city beyond um, kind of gives you a sense of, of, of where in Johannesburg it is. Um, and for me, this building is very connected and linked to its landscape, but for unusual ways. So um, the, the rock face and this huge tree in front of it became quite pivotal to how the building was designed. And this, the skin of the building is, is made um, with these, this kind of fragmentation. So the idea that you create views, um, you know, there's such an auto-response to living on top of a, a hill, and then you make this whole facade of glass, which cooks in the summer, it's freezing in winter, and you just see one 
magnificent view. So my idea was to create many views out of this magnificent view and to create different views. So the whole idea of fragmenting that, that landscape, it's more open on the north to let more light in and that you can see beyond, so into the copy, except that that's another copy in the ridge of, it's the same copy actually. Um, and that you can then also see back into the the high street and the kind of more urban nature of Melbourne. And you can see back there the Hillbrow Tower as well, or the Brixton Tower actually. So once you've moved into the um, courtyard space, then this is how you approach the building, which is over this um, bridge. You see, it's a, it's bright pink. That window is bright pink. Sorry, it's just terribly green. Um, and so you enter the building over this um, uh, bridge and to the centre there. And um, this kind of bay window, if you like, uh, you'll see throughout, so for example here, these are plastic flowers that are used as uh, insulation but also as decoration. And the colours of the building are very much in reference to the, the planting that is around it. So there's a big kapok tree that makes fantastic pink flowers, which is what that pink is about. Then you, you move into the, the middle level, which is all about living, and this fragmented view and creating different views from... Um, uh, you buy fragmenting the facade. So you see, for example, there that you kind of focus differently on how what is in front of you. From that middle level, you go up the set of stairs to the upper level. And in contradiction to sort of normal, this whole western facade is glass, but it's treated in a way that there's screening on the inside, also that it works with cold air in at the bottom and hot air out at the top. So it was meant to be screened, but the view from there of the setting sun was just so magnificent that, that um, I left it. And you can see again this kind of play of what is landscape, what is inside, and how you can kind of manipulate it or become part of the landscape. Um, and that is in the upstairs area. Also that the different levels have got sort of very different personalities. So this level is very much about the sky. You can see the moon at night. You can see the sun rising. Um, and uh, really what, it, what is so incredible about this house is this complete escape. So once you kind of move through the front gate and into the property, you feel like you're in, a, in the bush. I mean, this is in the middle of the city. I'm sort of five minutes from the city and you wake up with the sun rising through this incredible tree. And it was also there sits the cats. The cats used to walk around on these sills and sort of salivating at the birds that are sitting right at your face, kind of in the trees. It's magnificent. And the idea of camouflage. So, you know, what is, what is a pattern that is reflected? What is a real one? That the building disappears through that. This is down at the lower level, which is really where you start to connect with the rock face. Um, and it's a kind of heavier built space, whereas the top two are more light and, and, and timber and lightweight, whereas these, the, the bottom part is more cave-like. And that's the shower downstairs, where the rock really becomes part of the, of the uh, building. 
Um, and then, again, when you open everything up, how you become part of that landscape. Um, and you can see beyond there, again, the Melville copy. So it's this thing about framing views and shifting views. This tree is, um, so it's a huge Dumbaya tree, and in winter it loses all its leaves and lets all the sun in and warms the house, and in summer, well in spring it gets these wonderful white blossoms that then fade to beige and then brown, and then all these leaves burst out. So there's this incredible connection with changing views, changing um, seasons. You, 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 when you live in this house, you really are aware of your senses and of the environment acting on you. So it's a pity yours is so green. Um, and then this is, so the whole house, there are these huge nine and a half meter high gun poles, which is what that is, from which this building is suspended. So it is in itself a kind of a tree house. Um, and they were brought in with cranes because they weigh sort of over half a ton. Um, and that is it. Oh, I wish you could see it. It's beautiful. It doesn't look good. Um, in spring, where the blossoms are starting to come out. Um, and that kind of camouflage that the building is happening. And there are these little balconies that sort of burst off and give you incredible views to, to other parts. So for me, to live in this house is to feel alive and kind of connected to the environment. And you also feel like you're in a different place. You're not in the middle of a city, which I think is just really a wonderful experience. So thank you, and sorry for the water. <laughs> If there are any more questions, you can uh, ask a couple more questions from Kate. Um, but uh, we can also meet her outside because uh, we'd like you to join us for a cup of tea um, outside in the, in the foyer. Um, so meanwhile, I'd like to thank Kate very much for having accepted uh, our invitation and, and, and being here with us. Um, and also, um, the Trust wishes to thank the team at the Ananda Kularatna Hall uh, at Ananda College for all the hard work they do to, to host us here every year. And um, most importantly, to Miles Young, who annually sponsors the uh, speaker to fly out from wherever in the world the Trust has decided to bring them from. Uh, and although Miles is not here this year, he usually tends to come here, uh, there's a very big thank you from the Trust uh, for sponsoring that. And of course, thank, thank you very much to all of you to, uh, for, for coming and spending this time uh, with us uh, to celebrate uh, both the life of Jeffrey Bauer and the work of uh, successively wonderful architects who come and present their work. So Kate, thank you. Uh, thank you very much. <laughs>